you have your Bibles, uh, please take them and turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 9. And we're going to finish up our series this morning that we've begun at the beginning of the year on the essential church. The essential church. <clears throat> and we began uh, this year on this, this series uh, called Essential Church because we wanted to ask ourselves, what is, what is the church of Jesus Christ uh, to be like? It's really our mission, vision, values. What's, 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 the, what's, a, what's a fundamental to the health and growth of a church? What, what does the church need? Certainly, we all would agree that we, the church needs Christ. I think we uh, probably, without even preaching that, hopefully through the sermons that you covered throughout the year, we understand that Christ is, is what the church is essential to the church. It's why the church exists. He is why the church exists. Uh, his, uh, and his glory is why the church exists. His, uh, his work is uh, why the church exists, to, to make, known, make him known into our world, to proclaim to others Jesus Christ, to make disciples of Christ, uh, to, to proclaim his word, Jesus. The church exists for that. And so we understand the first essential of every church is uh, Christ himself. But what is necessary for the healthy, growing church of Christ be, beyond Christ himself? Uh, and if we kind of place the term, put it in terms of uh, different analogies, different figures of speech, you know, if uh, we think of the church as a body, then we might ask ourselves, what is its DNA? What, what's, what is it, what is it in every cell? What kind of DNA do we find in every cell, in every ministry of the church? Or if we use the analogy of a, of a building, if the church is a building, uh, what are its building blocks? What do we find in, in every material of a, of a building? What do we find in this building that is common to every aspect of this church? Uh, and these we call building blocks, DNA, marks, uh, values and, that we've entitled. And these values are given. Uh, as we study the scriptures, we find that these, there are such things, these DNA, these values, these building blocks, they're given to us by the Lord. They're the provisions of the Lord. And so that, and we, they're provisions of the Lord so that Christ church might be built up. Christ church might grow, might grow. So in addition to Christ, we've studied so far that we need the word of God. We need the Bible, uh, that God's word alone reveals to us uh, the words of Christ. It reveals to us all about Christ. It's the, it's the primary source. Everything else is a secondary source. This is the, the primary source of Christ, and, and that's why we need the word of God. We looked at that uh, two weeks ago. And then last week, Pastor Roger talked to us, taught for, to us from Ephesians chapter 2, and that our need for, secondly, the family of God. That, the, that we need, God has given to us a body, a family, a one, <clears throat> this brothers and sisters in Christ through whom we might grow together. And we read that kind of just even that was alluded in our call to worship this morning, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, particularly 11 to 6, uh, verses 15 and 16. But in addition to the word of God, in addition to the family of God, today we look at a third and final uh, building block, and that is the servants of God, or the servant leaders of God. Uh, and <clears throat> there's the, God gives to the church servant leaders who, through their example, through their uh, teaching, through their, uh, their edification, uh, that they, together, God uses them to build up his church, to cause the church to grow. 
And today's passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is, is one of many passages that we've touched on before on this value of the, the, of the servant leaders of Christ's church. And I wanted to kind of just take it and expand it a little bit. Uh, I think I've preached it as a sub-point in a sermon in the past. Today, I just want to uh, kind of expand it a little further out and address a little more uh, within this text. So uh, we're going to learn about this morning uh, this certain, what, how God uses servant leaders to grow the church. We're practically learning really the, the dangers, the, the inherent, inherent dangers of, of leaders, servant leaders. There are the role of servant leaders, the limitations of servant leaders, and the, as well as the accountability of servant leaders. We're going to look at that, these things. Uh, God gives us leaders for the church. It's, Christ gives us leaders uh, to the church, but at the same time, we must understand uh, today's passage almost a, is what we would call a philosophy on servant leaders, a philosophy on what, is, what are the leaders of Christ church to look like? How are they to, uh, to think? What are, the, what are these truths and that we're to understand and grasp and live according to as leaders of Christ church? This afternoon, we're going to have our church family meeting. And uh, every, uh, every January church family meeting, we uh, affirm our new ministry leaders. Our, our, there are, sometimes there are new elders. Sometimes there are new deacons and deaconesses. We, every year, we affirm our office, church officers like our, our treasurer and our secretary and things like that. But these are all really ministry leaders. And, and so for those of, uh, those of you who are ministry leaders for 2022 and 2023, uh, these are, uh, are truths that you particularly need to grasp. But they're, minist- they're truths that all of us as ministry leaders, those are, there are many of us here in this body, need to grasp. But they're also what the whole body needs to grasp. Even if you're not a ministry leader, we need to understand this so that we can correctly know what kind of leaders, what, kind of, what we should expect of our ministry leaders. Because there's a lot of things that we uh, mistakenly expect from our ministry leaders that are wrong to expect. And if, we're, and if we, we expect those kinds of things, then we become an unhealthy church. Because we look to our leaders to give something that maybe the Lord has not given them to us to provide for us. So we're going to look at all these things this day. There's going to be four points that are outlined, four truths, four truths to get grasp for us about servant leaders of God that are essential or necessary for the growth of the church. Our passage is 1 Corinthians. And if you know, we, uh, we touched on 1 Corinthians 15 at the end of uh, last year. 1 Corinthians was a letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth to answer various questions they had. And they, answered, they had these questions because there was division about these questions. There was problems about these questions. And they had all sorts of questions that plagued the church, that troubled them, that caused division. There was differences about these various issues. And so they wrote to Paul, and Paul writes this letter to answer some of those questions, to provide uh, clarity, biblical clarity. One of those issues was, in, uh, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, he writes, for I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, my Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. And by saying that, by introducing his letter, he's, Paul is introducing and saying, you know, I've heard that you guys, have, you guys are fighting with each other. You're having a lot of disagreements, quarrels. You know, wherever, wherever people come together, there is, because we're sinful, we have a sinful nature, there's always that potential temptation for, for quarrels, for conflicts. And it's, it's, uh, it's true of the church in Corinth. It's true of the church in San Francisco. It's, it's, and, you know, just think of it. It's true in your own marriage. It's true in your own home, right? So it's don't be surprised that, you know, when you get people together, there's going to be conflicts and quarrels. But, and, and this particular quarrel resulted in, in, a, in a conflicts over leaders that they were following. It was, it was over particularly, who do I follow? 
Who's my leader? Who, who's my, you know, my teacher? Uh, who's, my, who, who's the one who maybe led me to the Lord? Who's the one who, uh, whose teaching I, I follow uh, most of all, or I quote? And so uh, these things were, as Paul's concern, uh, among Paul's concern for the church in Corinth, and he writes uh, this passage. And in this passage, 1 Corinthians 3, he is particularly now starting to address this, this division uh, within the church. And again, we provide for us a philosophy, or beginnings of a, of a philosophy. And in fact, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians there, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, these books uh, that Paul wrote, some of these books really provide a very good philosophy of church leadership for us. But uh, we're going to look at a part of it today. And hopefully, uh, as it gives us biblical understanding of church leaders, it will guard us from when we have difficulties and quarrels, it will guard us from division. Because it's, uh, conflicts are unavoidable. We'll, they'll, they will exist in a fallen world where, where people are together, even among Christians. Uh, but that it guard, Christ would guard us from division and that we instead might know the harmony and, uh, of the Lord and the growth in Christ that he's designed for his church. So that's where we're going to head today, four truths to grasp about leaders. And so four truths to grasp about uh, servant leaders or leaders. Uh, sometimes the Bible calls leaders leaders. Sometimes the Bible calls leaders servants. So a lot of times, you, in, more colloquially today, we just call them servant leaders, but well, I'm just going to use leaders today. Four truths to grasp about leaders of Christ's church so that the church might grow. What's for, uh, truth number one? We find in verses one through four, and that this is, and this is the truth that we need to grasp, that leaders can be a temptation for disunity. Leaders can be a temptation for disunity. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter three, uh, verses one through four. Paul writes to the church, and I, brethren, he's writing to believers here, brothers and sisters, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Paul is a... Uh, Putting it nicely, he's calling out the church in Corinth. He's rebuking them. He's re- reproving them for their, for their division, for their dissension over their leaders. Though they are believers in Jesus Christ, he's basically uh, pointing out that you're not walking like believers in Jesus Christ. Instead of being uh, spiritual pe- men and brothers who are to be controlled and, uh, by the Spirit of God, you're, 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 you're fleshly people. You're, some of your translations have carnal you're acting like carnal believers. That is, you're controlled not by the spirit, but you're controlled by your flesh. And in the Bible uses flesh. It's not talking about the phys- actual physical flesh, but it's, it's a f- term that refers to is uh, a use of, of our sin nature. It's this fallen nature, this body, that this 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 body and this whole being that's under the curse of sin, and that and and because of this of our flesh, it, it it results in certain desires, and oftentimes those manifest in sinful desires. That's our flesh. Uh, those are things, whether it's uh, our own pride or for our power, for pleasures. Those are, these are the things of the flesh controlled by these fleshly desires. That's what Paul is saying. You're, you're not being spiritual, but you're, you're being carnal. You're being fleshly. And he points out that basically you guys are acting like immature Christians. You, you know, you, it's possible to be a Christian and to, to be immature, so immature that you live your lives as if you're, you're living as if you're still like you're an unbeliever. It's possible. Just because they're living like an unbeliever doesn't mean they are an unbeliever. It could be that they're an unbeliever, 
But it could be that they're living carnally. They're, they're at that moment because of their, maybe they're not walking with the Lord, the, the immaturity, they're, they're walking in the flesh. Even when we come to Christ, many of us, you think back to those early years of your Christian life, you might have thought, oh man, I remember it as a college Christian, you know, by, by the time I was, I say got saved in like sophomore year, freshman sophomore year, by the time I was senior, I thought, wow, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really godly, I feel. You know, <laughs> I feel like I'm really growing in the Lord. And uh, when I went to look back to that, I think back to that time, and I said, wow, that guy was really immature. And in fact, is when you're young believers, you're, we're immature. We don't even know it. We think we're godly, but we're not. Along the way, you realize, you know when you're godly is when you start realizing you're not. When you start realizing that every day you, you wrestle with sin, every day when you have circumstances, trials, situations that, that test you, you find yourself being tempted to, to turn to the fleshly response. Oh, as opposed to spirit, the spirit controlling you. You know, and, and the thief, so that's this is a reality of living as, in our fallen flesh here in, in this world, and that's something that we need to be mindful of. See, the church of Corinth was an immature church, and, and they were like an infant, and there's nothing wrong with being infants in Christ if you actually are an infant in Christ, you're a baby in Christ, you're a young believer. But if one stays as an infant in Christ and doesn't grow, then that's, that's as, un, as unusual as if a baby never grows, right? I'm uh, just looking at photos in my room, and I saw a photo of our daughter at two years old. I'm glad she doesn't look like that anymore. And five years later, she's, looking, she's seven years old. She's, she's a young girl, soon to be a young woman. A healthy child is a growing child, and a healthy church is a, is a growing church. The church in Corinth, however, was not a healthy church. The believers there were immature, they, they were controlled by the flesh, and then, so it manifested in what Paul calls jealousy and strife. We actually find these two terms, they're, they're quite common throughout the scriptures. You just do a word search, you'll see, we're not to be characterized by jealousy or strife. Sometimes it's, it says envy and strife, it's very similar thoughts. But wherever there's envy, jealousy, there's, there's, there's wanting what others have, what others, and what you don't have, there's, there's a... And, there's going to be strife, and that strife is basically just dissension, conflicts, quarrels, and the and like. There was disagreements, strife in the church of Corinth over various subjects, and that led to divisions. And, we just, and this is just something we understand whenever we gather people together. There's always going to be differences. There's always going to be disagreements. Even among godly people, you know, there, there's going to be those things. But it's how you handle disagreements, how you handle the disagreements about the various matters will reflect the spirit's control or the flesh's control. Does it lead, does when conflicts happen in your life, when disagreements or differences happen in your life, does it lead to disunity or unity with other believers? Does it lead to jealousy or trust? See, I may differ with, but I trust that they are striving to understand God's word just as I'm trying to understand God's word. Does it lead to strife? Oh, that person, you know, complaints, conflict, gr- uh, uh, grumbling about others, or does it lead to harmony? You know, we're gonna, we're gonna, we may differ upon this, but we're going to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For the Corinthians, of course, it, it produced disunity, it produced jealousy, it produced strife. And particularly they were, and the particular occasion in which they were divided over was over their leaders. Uh, so various, there were various subjects that they disagreed about, and, and perhaps they were, uh, were quoting various leaders and what they had learned from various leaders to argue for their particular viewpoint or for their particular case. It's just like when well, someone might emphasize a verse here in Mark and then emphasize a verse there, another one would verse, emphasize a verse in Acts. 
And another one's going to emphasize a verse in Revelation. And they each can have, a, have a, some, uh, some evidence some, uh, for a particular viewpoint. But really, we need to know the whole Bible. Take a look at the whole Bible. What's the whole Bible teach? Not just one one verse teaches, but what does the whole Bible teach? And trying to understand this. So, but Paul and Paul, uh, they, they would divide over uh, people saying, I'm of this, of this, so kind of divisions of, of their leaders. Paul and Paul are mentioned here, and Paul and Paul were, were significant leaders in the church of Corinth. God used them to influence that church. Paul was used to be, as was the one who planted the church, ministered there for over, uh, I think, uh, a year and a half or so. Um, Apollos was the one whom, uh, when Paul, after Paul started on the second missionary journey, on the third missionary journey, Apollos came into Corinth, and he was used to, to grow and strengthen the church in Corinth because he was mighty in the word of God. And so, but when, when divisions or differences came out, they, they started having pride or, or, or conflicts over which leaders they followed. And certainly the same thing happens for us today. We all have our favorite preachers, teachers, leaders. It's, and it's easy to feel pride about, you know, I, I listen to this guy or I listen to that person. Um, but, you know, that, and, and that's, that's, it's okay to have favorite, you know, favorites. Uh, just like even here, you might, some of you might like listening to me or like listen to, to Roger or, or Ray or, or you like Dale or some of the other elders of this church, you know. Um, we all have our kind of preferences and just like styles of speech, et cetera. Um, but ultimately, if, as we grow in maturity, we may have favorites, but at the end of the day, when we, though we may hear our favorite and may not hear our favorite, we're, we really want to hear Christ. We want to hear truths of Christ. Do I hear Christ in what they're saying? Do I hear the words of Christ in what they're saying? Do I hear the word of God in what they're saying? Certainly, um, God's word, God, and God gives us leaders, but we, we ought not to be divided over them as the church of Corinth. See, when the church focuses on leaders instead of Christ, it becomes a weak and immature church prone to division. And all the leaders and, and teachers are given to the church by Christ. We read that in our call to worship, Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. They can, in this case, as we see in Corinth, become a source of temptation for disunity. Even through, um, uh, even through no fault of the leaders, no fault of Paul or Apollos, it wasn't their fault, the members of the church in Corinth became divided over them. Uh, they began to uh, argue for, for one teacher over another. And the same can happen even here. But the sad reality is in just in my observations of, of churches and that divide, uh, in the majority of cases, division of, in the church uh, often begins with division among leaders themselves. Uh, it usually is uh, whenever there's division, it's almost um, often, it's practically always, uh, division among leaders. Uh, and leaders, and why it happens is because leaders are talking about various issues of the church, and there's going to be disagreements about various matters. It happens all the time. We disagree, we think this should be this way or that way. And leaders, and those disagreements will, and it happen, but it's how we deal with those, those differences when we leave. And this happens on an elder level, but I'm sure it happens in your respective ministry teams. You may have decisions to make, and you may walk out there with, you may have disagreements, which you try to hammer out, and you walk out there with some decision. You might not even be happy with it. But when you walk out there and you're not happy with it, what do you do? Because what you do will show, reflect maturity or immaturity. When we leave those meetings, we, we, we should prayerfully leave, resolve to move forward in that common direction that was decided upon. Every leader may not be happy about the decision, but every leader can sense that decision. He says, we're going to support that decision. 
And the leader who leaves there and starts, but then starts telling others that, well, you know, oh boy, we, that was the elder's decision, but I'm, I was really against it. That, that's, you know, it's maybe honest, it may be true, but that sows dissension. It shows people, it, it, it draws people to yourself. See, you know, and against the elders. You know, the, and we as leaders, ministry leaders, must be careful of that. Complaining or criticizing other leaders privately to others is, is a sowing of division in the church. It, it sows division. And if you're doing this, you, you need to stop. You may think it's innocent. You think it's just, oh, you know, I'm just, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, critiquing the leaders of the church, all the decisions they did. All oh, that church family, you hear all these things they're talking about doing. Oh, they don't know anything. You know, this is what they should be doing. That doesn't help. You need to stop, repent, and prayerfully speak to the, to the leaders that can have the influence. Talking to others who are not in that ministry leadership uh, doesn't help them. It doesn't help you, really, either. It doesn't help the church. It only sows divis- division and dissension. It hurts it, in fact, because what you're doing is you're dividing the church that Christ has made one. Well, anyways, uh, that's, that's a, uh, leaders are, uh, are, can be a temptation for disunity. Uh, we ourselves can be the temptation for disunity. And you tell you, the number one, who, one person in this church who has the most potential to do great harm and sow division in the church is me as the lead pastor. The, the greater your responsibility of oversight, the greater you have to, to sow division. To, to sow, and that's, and the, so you think about that. Many who are ministry leaders, elders here, there's uh, deacons and as deaconesses here. The, you, when you have this responsibility, we must be careful that, that we're not sowing disunity by how we speak or how we conduct ourselves. Um, and certainly as a church, because the church, if they're immature, they will hear you and they won't be able to discern that, hey, not, oh, elder so-and-so is sitting right there by doing that. And they won't discern that. They're just going to think, oh, that's how I should think when I come to church. Oh, I don't, whenever you don't like something, just, oh, critique, crit- criticize the church and disagree with them. The mature believers, the mature, you know, I'll tell you, um, I've seen, I've, the mature believer is going to, uh, is going to communicate uh, to their leaders, to the, the particular leaders, when they disagree about something. Because they know that's directly who can change it. And they'll communicate in a, in a very gracious way, uh, and they'll do it so that, because they know that that, uh, that, that that honors the Lord by talking to them. Not by talking to somebody else. That doesn't help. Talk to the leaders. And as leaders, you know, we, we fight the temptation to, to think that it's criticism. But we understand when you come to us and you have your concerns that you want to make this church better. We understand that. You want to help make this church better. We have that attitude. Don't be afraid to go to your leaders and tell them that, uh, that, uh, uh, that you know, that of your concerns or your thoughts about something. They might not take your advice, but we understand you want to make this church better. Just as we want to make this church better as well. Anyways, that's Bruno. I mean, I, I, I talked quite about that to death, but let's move on. Uh, second truth that we need to grasp about leaders for the growth of the church is that leaders are servants of the Lord. Leaders are servants of the Lord. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So Paul corrects the Corinthians with the, the proper attitude then regarding leaders. They were divided uh, about over Apollos, about Paul, their, their, their favorite leaders. He said, what, what is Apollos? What is Paul? And he says, well, this is what they are. They're servants. The Greek word here is diakonoi, from which we get our English word deacon, deaconess. 
uh, diaconate, referring to the, the, the group of them. But the apostle is not speaking of the office of deacons or deaconess in the church. But rather, he's talking about their function here, that these leaders, Apollos and Paul, they, they are servants. Sometimes we translate this word ministers. So we call it ministry leaders because ministry means service. They're service leaders, servant leaders. They're, they were used originally, uh, most commonly, of, of basically waiters, kind of people we call waiters. They, they would wait at tables. But they're used often, actually, they were slaves most often. They were slaves who would be responsible to when you sit down in a meal, they're the ones who would come and wash your feet. They're the ones who would come and provide you the food. They're the ones who would pour you the wine. <clears throat> they're the ones who would come and serve all you so you can enjoy your meal or your, your, at the table. That's, that's the picture of these, these servants. The master is the one who's sitting at the table. The honored guests are those that are sitting around the table. But the servant is the one who's standing, walking back and forth, providing, helping, prepare serve the food that for the master and the guests. Apollos and Paul, Paul says, are, are servants. They're the slaves. They're the ones who are serving. They're not the masters. They are servants in the work of the gospel. They are servants, Paul says, through whom you believed. They've served you the gospel of Jesus Christ so that through faith in Jesus Christ you might believe in him. That's why we treasure our leaders so much. How much do we, I, I know there's somebody in your life who probably shared with you the gospel through whom you came to faith. And I know for every one of us, we, we honor that person because they told us about Jesus. Whether it was our parents, whether it was our Sunday school teachers, whether it was our pastors, we honored them because they took the time to tell us about Jesus and through Jesus that we might come to know salvation. And that's rightly so. There's, but let's not forget, we, we tend to elevate them. I know for a long time I elevated my pastor for a long time. But I, remember, I must remember healthily for this church that he's a servant. He's a servant. He, he's not the master. So these servants, they serve the gospel. Instead of, uh, instead of proclaiming allegiance to these servants, the Corinthians ought to be proclaiming allegiance and giving honor to the master of these servants, the one through whom, uh, of these servants who, through whom they believed. The master, of course, is the Lord as the pastor because as the Lord gave opportunity to one. These servants that are in our church, in the church in Corinth, that minister among them are servants of the Lord whom he gave to the church. Just as we read in Ephesians 4, 11, 12, Christ gave gifted men to the church. He gives servant leaders to the church. And you are the leaders of this church, whether elders, deacons, deaconess, are, are Christ's gift to the church. And he gave them an opportunity to serve him, carry out the task of, of making disciples of Christ. But the Corinthians in their immaturity started treating Paul and Apollos as the masters, as the lords to follow. And they forgot that it was to Jesus that they were to follow. Paul and Apollos were simply doing what their master told them to do. An immature church tends to put their, their teachers and leaders and pastors up on pedestals. We all do, tend to do that. And then we start treating them as if they are the masters. And, and woe be us when those leaders and those masters, those teachers, start thinking that how you treat them is actually who they are, that they're the masters, that I'm the Lord of this church. That would be the dangerous thing. Sometimes leaders forget this vital truth, and they think they're the masters, and when they think they're the masters, that oftentimes leads to a church where one guy has to say in everything, and there's nothing that happens to church without that guy's say, and that gets to one's head because, you know, there's a lot of pride saying, you know, hey, nothing happens to church without my say. I don't care what happens in this church because of my say. That's the attitude we should have. 
what matters is what happens in this church should be what Christ says. That's what should happen. Our Lord is Jesus Christ. And we need to, be, we need to have the attitude of servant leaders of a servant. We are all servants. We're all waiters. And our Lord is the master. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the master. A servant doesn't think about what I want for this church. What does Christ want for the church? What does the master want for the church? And good and faithful servants are those who follow the will and example of their master. I've been uh, perusing this book by Paul Tripp uh, called Lead. It's a book on leadership and I think about giving it to our uh, elders uh, and uh, for, uh, for something for us to read. But uh, I like this quote by, uh, in this, on this chapter on service, leaders. As a leader, you are not called to mastery. You're called to servanthood. The master who called you didn't live the entitled life of a master, but the life of a suffering servant. Every moment of his life, from the straw piercing his infant skin to the nails piercing his hands and feet, your master suffered. Every leadership community is called to follow the mentality, attitudes, submission, and willingness of the servant master who called, equipped, and sent them. And that's uh, all true. But that reflects this passage. Who is Apollos? Who is, who is Paul? Who is Henry? Who is Roger? Who is Dale? Who is Ray? Servants. They're servants of the Lord. They're not the masters. To be a leader is to be a servant of the Lord who follows Jesus in sacrificially serving others. To point them, not to ourselves, but to the one who gave us salvation. The one who gave us the opportunity to serve. There's a third principle that we learn about servants of God in this passage. And that is that leaders will answer to God. Leaders will answer to God. I'm sorry, not leaders answer. Leaders cannot grow the church. I'm ahead of myself. That's point four. Leaders cannot grow the church. That's verse six to seven. Leaders cannot grow the church. Let's uh, read chapter three, verse six to seven. I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who, who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Paul begins using agricultural imagery here. Farming imagery is uh, on the significance of having God as our master. He equated the ministry of the preaching of the gospel of, uh, as basically of, of uh, his preaching of the gospel as planting seed. And then he describes Apollos' ministry of strengthening the believers as basically watering, uh, watering uh, the, the seeds and the growing plants. In both, verse 6 and 7, Paul used the, a, a strong um, Conjunction, and uh, it's a, and we call it Greek, it's diversity, but it's a, a strong conjunction. It says, but, and we, in our, when we say a contrast, a conjunction, in the Greek there are two, and the, but this one he uses is the stronger one. It's a stronger contrast. He contrasts what Paul and Apollos did with what God did. Though Paul sowed and though Apollos uh, watered, but God was doing something else. God was the one who was causing the growth. God was causing the growth in the church of Corinth. All that the church was growing into, uh, their salvation, their response, their strengthening, was because God was causing that. All the growth that the Corinthians experienced from their salvation uh, to their sanctification was caused by God. And, uh, And since God is the source of their growth, then it follows that according to verse 7, Paul writes that the planter, the one who plants and the one who waters, really they're nothing. 
They're nothing special. They're just servants. It's the one who causes the growth that matters. But who is something? Who matters? Who is everything? Is God who causes the growth. The one who causes their growth is the one who continues to cause their growth in the church of Corinth. God continually caused the church in Corinth to grow, and, and not just in the past when he saved them, uh, not just in the past uh, when, when uh, Apollos was sanctified, through Apollos, he was sanctifying them, but in the present where they're without their, their, those for their leaders, but they were going through the trials, but God is still using, orchestrating the situations of their life to cause them to grow. We must not remember, we must not forget, as leaders, as the church, who causes the growth in the church? The Lord does. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a lesson that uh, sometimes we forget, but I know I mean, many of us who are young parents of young children, when you were parents of young children, you might have remembered this, recalled this. You know, uh, Cindy and I, we try to teach our children, we try to raise them up in the ways of the Lord, things of the Lord. But one of the humbling things as we're doing is we're teaching them, as we're talking to them about the gospels, we always see their constant sin. Uh, but we come to realize that we, we can't save them. We can't save them. I, I can't make our sons and our daughters believers into Jesus Christ. I can do many things. I can give them Bible knowledge. We can pattern godly behavior. We can apply biblical discipline. We can show them every day our own need for our Savior, but we can't save them. We can't make them grow in Christ-likeness. Only God can do that. The leaders, you can tell someone about the gift of life, but you don't have the power to give life. You can tell someone that they must be born again, but you can't regenerate a single soul. You can tell, call someone to faith, but you can't give them that faith. You can teach someone God's truths, but you can't make them follow God's truths. Only God causes true, lasting growth. And when we forget this and start thinking that we are the ones who are responsible to cause growth, at best, we set ourselves up for frustration. But at worst, in our sinfulness, in our worldliness, we resort to techniques of the world, manipulation, coercion, other strong-handed efforts to change behavior in people because we can't change a heart. We can change behavior. Behavior is not what we want. It's the heart we want, and the right heart will result in behavior. But we can't change the heart. We can give them all the truth, the counsel, the wisdom from God's word, but God is the one who causes them to, to grasp that truth and, and take it for themselves and, and, and respond in repentance and, just, and re- commitment to follow God's ways. And what you use to make people comply in that way, and when you do that, is what you'll have to maintain to keep them complying. I believe every, uh, I hear sometimes of cult-like churches that are out there. And I, I think, well, how do they start off that? These, these are gospel-preaching people. How do they end up being cult-like like that? Probably somewhere along the way, someone found that they could use a certain technique to affect change in behavior. And because that was not God's way, they then continued to use that, and that could just kind of explode, and it became a, just a controlling church. And uh, I kind of just hear, when I hear those stories, it's, it's sad, but it's something we need to be mindful of. 
We don't need to coerce, manipulate, or control anyone to do anything. That's the God, job of God and his Holy Spirit in the work of God's people. Let that happen. Let him do his work. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's going to do that work, and he's doing it in every one of us. He's began a good work in every single soul here, and he's going to perfect it. He will use leaders. He will use the truths that we teach, but it's not who affect, we who affect change. It's God who does. From beginning to end of our salvation and our, our lives, God is at work. God causes the growth, and a mature church understands that only God can cause the true spiritual growth and even sometimes the numerical growth that comes from preaching God's word. That's principle three. Truth three. Fourthly, a fourth truth and final truth for church growth for about of regarding spiritual leaders is this, and that is leaders will answer to God. Leaders will answer to God. Now, he, uh, verse eight to nine, Paul writes: Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers; you are God's field, God's building. Paul first acknowledges that the one who plants and the one who waters. They have, a, they have a unity. There's a oneness. They're a unity and identity and purpose. They're one in Christ. They're one in Christ. They're, they're part of the same family. They're part of the one same body. They, they have the same, same Lord. Same, they're one Lord, one faith, one common baptism. They have one common purpose. That is to glorify God through making disciples. So it doesn't matter really whether, whether you're, you're one who waters, you're one who plants. It's all for the same goal. We're one in that same to see the church grow in Christ. And that's important truth for us as leaders to grasp, to remember that we're here for the same purpose. Some of us are going to be teaching and preaching from the pulpit. Some of us are going to be teaching in a, in a larger Sunday school class. Some of us are not going to do that, but we're going to be discipling small groups of people. Some of us are going to be caring for not just groups of adults, but we're going to be caring for groups of children. Some of us are going to be working together in a, in a less of a, of a hands-on with people, but hands-on with, with equipment and, and facilities. But make no mistake, that's still a ministry. There's people that we influence. And though we're all different, we all have different gifts, different abilities, different roles and places within this church, we're all one. We're all one in Christ. We're all one in our purpose. We're all, trying this one, we're all aiming for the same goal, to see this church grow in Christ. And but yet... Paul adds that though, as we, though we are one in identity and purpose, he wants us to know, know that each one of us will be individually responsible for what we do. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We're not just all going to get the same reward. You're going to get your reward for your labor. My, I'm going to get my reward for my labor. And this is not talking about salvation. Uh, this is not talking, but this is talking about at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul is going to actually elaborate on this in verses 10 and 15, a few verses later in this, after this passage, where he's going to talk about at the judgment seat of Christ, in the day of judgment, believers in Christ are going to be judged before him, not regarding their salvation, but regarding the, the works of their life, what they did for the Lord. And the, the works are all going to be tested as through fire, it says. And, it, and he used the, the, the figure of the material that we use to build, wood, hay, stubble, or gold, sil uh, silver, gold, precious stones. It says, and that will reveal it. Verse 14 says, is, is these materials, you think about these materials that you use to build a you know, church, if it's put through fire, what, what will be burned up? The wood, hay, stubble. But the, the, the precious stones, the silver, gold, those things will last, they will remain. 
in verse 14 says, if any man's work which he has built on it, that is on the foundation of Christ, remains, he will receive a reward. See, every servant leader answers to God, will answer to God for his or her ministry within the body of Christ. Even though we're all one, we're all trying to do the same thing, we're all going to answer to God for what we do. Why? Not only is he our Lord and Master, because this is God's church. The answer is this is God's church. Four, verse nine, four, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This translation of verse nine beautifully reflects the, the Greek, the original Greek. The emphasis in the English as well as in the Greek is on God's, God's fellow workers, God's field, God's building. See, Paul and Apollos are fellow workers, but they are, they, they're, they're, they're co-laborers. The, the Greek is uh, synergoi, from which we get synergy, who belong to God. They, they're co-workers who work together, not apart, and definitely not against. They're God's fellow workers. Now, they're not fellow workers with God, though God is working with us. But the point here is that they're fellow workers that belong to God, that answer to God. We're hired by him. Jesus talks about uh, the parable of the landlord who goes out and he hires the people to, to serve him. And he says, I'll, I will give you this when, when the time, when the, harp, when the end of the day. And he then goes out and hires some more. He goes out and hires some more. And he's going to give them up their pay at the end of the day. That's the idea. We're all called to be fellow workers together in this church. But we are all hired and we all serve the same master, the same Lord God. We belong to him. It is the Lord Jesus who gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and ministry leaders for the equipping and the building up of the church. And leaders then, therefore, answer to God because they belong to God. But not only that, they answer to God because the church belongs to God. It's not that the leaders belong to God, but the church body belongs to God. The very people that you minister among, the, uh, Paul used the terminology of the field, the building. He's using these... Uh, agricultural, as well as uh, architectural analogies of the church. It says these, this field, this building that you're ministering among as a fellow worker, they belong to God as well. They're God's. It is he who provides the foundation, Christ, of the building. It is he who provides the workers for this building or this field. It is he who calls people into this church in Christ. It all belongs to God. And so therefore, because this church belongs to God, leaders will answer to God for what they've done with Christ's church, with God's church. You know, we have accountability in this church. We have a structure in the churches as a human organization. We, we have that, elders and such, and deacons, and deacons, ministry leaders. But in an, and that is, a, and we, there's an accountability that we answer to in a very temporal sense. But are ultimately the leaders of the church really answer to only one person, we will give an answer to only one person that matters, and that's the answer to God. We must answer to God for how we serve in Christ's church. How I teach this morning and preach, how I lead, how I shepherd, how I care. None of us are, uh, none of us are going to be, uh, are going to serve perfectly. We're all going to sometimes serve with wood, hay, and stubble, but hopefully more times we're, we're serving with gold, silver, and precious stones. You know, the church leaders of the church, and if you're a ministry leader of this church, 
you must remember that you, it's not that you answer to me. You can, you don't, yes, you know, in an organizational way, but you answer to God. You do not answer to anyone else. You will answer to God. The church leaves the church not answer to anyone else. We don't answer to the government, right? We don't do that. We don't answer to any denominational leaders. We're not even part of denomination. We don't answer, you don't answer to John MacArthur, John Piper, or Chuck Swindoll, or you name your favorite pastor or preacher. You don't answer to Henry Tam. Ministry leaders answer to God. This is God's church. That's why we have, and because it is God's church. Let me just kind of kind of build off that phrase, God's church. A lot of times I know we refer to it, and I've mentioned this before, that we speak of this as our church. A lot of times I, I, I cringe when I hear, oh, that's, we tend to call churches by who pastors that church. That's, that's Pastor Henry's church, because of the primary preaching pastor. It's not Pastor Henry's church. Yes, that's the church that Pastor Henry preaches at, or shepherds in. It's not the Pastor Henry's church. This, that's God's church, or you can say Christ's church. You can even say the Spirit's church, okay? Those are, but it's not my church. Not, we sometimes say, it's our church, my church. And I get that. That's the church you attend. It's the church you're a member of. And that's why membership is important. And we praise the Lord for those 10 plus members who will be joining us this afternoon. But God alone is the owner. He alone gets a say in the matters of this church. He determines its leaders. He determines its structure. He determines its ministries. And as fellow servants of God, then, we need to work together. Because we work together for him. Not against one another. And since we belong to God, let us always seek his will for matters of his church. An immature church, church is not going to look, to, will not be looking to God's word. They'll look to other churches. They'll look to other institutions. At best, they might look to just the human leaders, the leaders of the church. But that falls short. We look to our leaders, hopefully, because they point us to Christ, our head. Our church is going to recognize that God owns this church, and thus we seek and submit to his will at all times for his church. Well, I hope you'll be able to join us for our church family meeting later today uh, at 2 o'clock. You can join us virtually or uh, online, or you can join us here in person. We're going to be affirming the calling of the Lord upon 18 renewing deacons and deaconesses, six new deacons and deaconesses, um, we're gonna, and we're grateful because they're going to come alongside some 33 others, uh, deacons, existing, uh, ongoing deacons and deaconesses in this church. Some 50, that's like 60 ministry leaders. Actually, you have the, the 10 elders of this church. That's a 70, a ministry leadership of 70. And there are some who are ministry leaders who are not yet uh, deacons and deaconesses. But it is our, we're grateful for all these ministry leaders that Christ has given to the church. It's been our ongoing aim to recognize all ministry leaders here as deacons and deaconesses or elders of the church. We do so because we want people to understand that it's a, it's a high calling to be a ministry leader, to be a leader of Christ, to, to be tasked with teaching, leading a ministry. No matter how many people or the age of the people, it is a significant task when you are entrusted with souls whether souls of, of those you're making disciples of or souls that you serve alongside in a team to accomplish a task. We're going to be making disciples in them all. And we want to elevate so that we elevate this responsibility so we recognize that God calls us to be godly examples. 
leaders by example and by speech. And we look forward to that today, later today. And I ask you, the church family, uh, to be, just be in prayer. And then if I, I'm going to ask you just to, for three prayer requests, really. Please pray that the church's leaders, all of us, myself included, particularly, would understand and grasp these truths. It's so easy to forget them. It's really easy to forget them. Pray that as a church, we would guard ourselves from, from elevating our leaders above Christ or expecting of them only what God can do. And then pray that the Lord would use these servant leaders to build and grow his church. Because that is why God has given us these servant leaders. And I appreciate the, the honor in which you, when you, we honor our leaders, and that we, we really praise the Lord for uh, the loving church that we, we serve among. And we pray that all of us as ministry leaders would be faithful uh, to serve you and to serve this body until the Lord calls us elsewhere and not calls us to do otherwise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, reminder about the, the role of ministry leaders in, in your church. We thank you, Father, that, that they are first and foremost, uh, they're servants. They are your servants of the Lord who are called to make disciples of Christ, who one day give an answer to you for how they serve. Help us each as a church, as well as ministry leaders, particularly to remember that this is not our church, but this is your church. It belongs to you. Christ is the head. And that we would look to you and look to Christ and his word for the truths that we need to guide and lead your church. Guard us from the temptations that come with leadership, with leaders. The temptations particularly to disunity, and division. Guard our leaders from sinful strife and jealousy. Guard us from thinking that we are the masters. Guard us from thinking that it's, it's dependent upon us to change and grow this church. Guard us from thinking that we don't answer to anyone but ourselves. Father, help us to hear your word, to fear you, and so that we might be the servants who serve you faithfully. And remember always that Christ is the Lord and master of this church. It is your church, Lord. And we thank you for the privilege of serving you. We thank you for our ministry leaders. We pray for them. We pray for all our ministry leaders so that they would continue to hear these words and grasp them and serve you faithfully in the days and months and years ahead so that you would cause Essa Bible to grow. We thank you and praise you for your wisdom and grace in giving us these leaders. Cause your church to grow for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.